Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm, as Art said, I'm Gabe. I'm one of the executive pastors here and part of the preaching team. And I'm really excited to continue our series in Joshua. It's been really fun. Last week, uh, the guy who's playing guitar last week was Ken Winger, not that Tyler was playing today. But Ken and I were standing on the stage and we were looking up at that series graphic. It's like, man, I really like that picture. And he goes, that's a mean looking lion. And it is, right? Uh, what would you, no, he looks cuddly. No, he looks mean. If you saw that lion coming at you, what would you do? I know what I'd do, because I, I watch Man vs. Wild. And, you know, Bear Grylls is on there. He's like upbeat, he's fun. He's like talking about crevasses and things like that, right? And uh, there was this one episode where he is showing you how to survive in Africa and how to deal with the different animals like the hippos and the elephants and all these things. And there's this one scene where they come in real close on him. He's like, I'm not gonna go near them and I'm not gonna demonstrate what to do, but there's a lion right there. So I'll just tell you. And he goes on to explain that if a lion comes at you, you can't run. If you run, their chase instinct will kick in and you're dead because you're not gonna outrun it. So he goes, don't run. What you're supposed to do is go against all internal instincts, right? And stand your ground and make yourself as big as possible. It's like raise your arms and make as much noise. And the lion, you're supposed to bluff him and he's supposed to run away from you. That's what you're supposed to do. And I love that. Like I'm sitting there on the couch with potato chips on my shirt. Like that's what I do when I'm in that situation. And I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking... Like, who was the first guy that figured that out? Like, you know, well, Bobby was eating last week, he ran, so I'll just try this thing out. Like, you're gonna, oh, I'm bigger than you, lion. I'm not what you wanna eat. Like, doing these Jedi mind tricks to try to get the lion to leave, and it actually worked. Like, who would take that sort of risk? Who would do something so bold and so dangerous I think it would have to be someone who believed that their only hope was to take that bold risk in order to live. They would have to believe that this risk will actually save them. They must have this relentless faith in an unguaranteed outcome. In the book of Hebrews, I know that's in your Bible, it's towards the back, Um, and we'll get to Joshua. I just want to park there for a second. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we read about such people who had this kind of relentless faith in an unguaranteed outcome. And they go through all these great heroes of the faith, like Moses and Abraham and all these guys, all the major uh, pictures in the Bible, right? But they preface the whole thing with this definition of what faith is. It says this in uh, chapter 11, verse one. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And as this passage lists off all these major like heroes of the faith and the, the faith that they displayed and things that, that were um, unseen but were promised to them, they list this one character who we'll be talking about today, Rahab. What did Rahab do to make the list? 
the Hall of Fame, the, the heroes of the faith list. If you have your Bibles, um, turn to Joshua chapter two. And we're gonna spend most of our time uh, looking at this story of Rahab and learning what she did. Okay, so Joshua chapter two, verse one, our story begins with Joshua sending a couple of spies on a mission. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim. All right, we gotta acknowledge this word because it's awkward and it's tough to say in, in church, but that's, that's the word, okay? Just wanna let you know, trust me, I looked it up in my textbooks, it's the place where they're from. Uh, I <laughs> And when you're preparing for a message like this, you Google, it. hopefully it's not phonetic. You know, you're like hoping you could pronounce it differently. And I went to the, the page and I, I pressed the button. It's like, shittim. All right, I guess I'm gonna have to say that in church. Look at how many views there are. Wait, go back. There's 214K. That's all pastors. That's all pastors going, there's gotta be another way. I even saw one comment from another pastor who said, that awkward moment when you're preaching a sermon, you have to find a way to skip a verse because you don't wanna say, you know what, in church. So, you know, I'm not gonna skip it because I know what, if I were you, I'd be going, he had to skip that and I would be lost for a few minutes. So I figured we'd just acknowledge it together. It's the word the, the storyteller thought it was important to add to the story. He didn't know that thousands of years later, English-speaking pastors all over the world would be sweating bullets over this thing. But God did. And he inspired it. So I think that's God's sense of humor, the longest setup for a punchline of all time. All right, we have to move on. All right, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly to you know where, from you know where, as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Their mission, if they choose to accept, right, roll the tape, it's gonna self-destruct, is to find out more about their military, their weaknesses, it's, it's espionage and whatnot, you know, like they, they have to go undercover and gain intel before they start this whole campaign of, of taking the land that God has promised them. This is their job, this is what they're supposed to do. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Okay, time out, two things. First of all, this is our hero of the faith, Rahab, the prostitute. That's her title. All throughout scripture, she can't even seem to shake it. She's known as this person who did this incredible thing. She's still called Rahab the prostitute. I don't know why. I don't, I don't know if there's like so many Rahabs that they're like, was it, are you talking about Rahab the beautician or Rahab, no, it's Rahab the prostitute, oh yes. Yeah, I don't, there doesn't seem to be any other Rahabs in the scripture that they mention, but for some reason they attach their title. They don't do that with other characters like Omar the tent maker, but they seem to do it with her. I think it's intentional. I think this is an interesting point to note about the Bible. The Bible doesn't tend to clean things up. It doesn't tend to make its heroes into these stained glass uh, caricatures of perfection. If this were a history book, things might be omitted or cleaned up. But this is the story of God. And this is the way he likes to tell it. Messy and raw, because it speaks greater of who he is. It's Rahab, the prostitute. Secondly, I don't know if you're like me, but the first question you ask is, why did the spies go to a prostitute's house, like first stop in the mission? 
I can tell you why, it's not what you think it is. The storyteller goes out of their way to let you know that they just lodged there. There's other words they could have used in, in the language, that they, but they only went there for the services of lodging. They didn't, no other services rendered, okay? And you go, okay, well why, why, why there? This is Rahab's house, and she's a prostitute, but this isn't really a brothel. It's actually more like a tavern or a hostel. It's a place where transient people would go, which is the perfect place, if you're a spy, to gather information about the local area. It's the perfect place to go. It's kind of this seedy underbelly of the town to go and see what kind of political strife there might be or, or are there any potential alliances or any, anything like that. And it's also, they're not from there. They have to sleep somewhere. And this is like the original Airbnb, right? It's her house. So they go there. Verse two, that was only like verse one. <laughs> verse two, and it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Bam, that was quick. Like tonight, we figured it out. They're spies and we know their, their identity and their mission are found out right away. Like why? I don't know why, they don't go through depths. They don't say their disguises were terrible. You know, like come in with like the, the hat and the curls. And they're like, I think those are Israelite spies. And they're like, oh, hey Morty, we forgot to cut the curls. I don't know if their disguises were bad or if they were just were really, they, they know their mission too. I don't know if they're going around going, hey, I'm no spy or anything, but you know, is there any weak points in the wall? Hard to defend territories? We don't know. But everybody seems to know, and it's reported to the king who they are, they're Israelites, and what they're doing. They're here to search out the land. They know their mission and their identity. It's compromised immediately and reported to the king. These guys are not very good spies. You can make that conclusion. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Bring them out. We know they're in there, we know who they are, we know what they're doing here, they're here to search out the land. We know their mission. We know they're here to gather intel. But the plot thickens, verse four. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went, but pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. I want you to take notice of how much risk she's taking here. First, she hides them beforehand, meaning she figured this whole thing out, she knew people were coming, and she quickly hides them. In this busy scene, she's able to grab these two spies who are terrible at their job, apparently, and she's able to sneak them off in the busyness of it all and convince them not only to hide, but that she's on their side. Extremely risky. And she could have uh, left it at that, but she doesn't. She does all of this right under the noses of everyone. She also lies to the king's men. This is a risky move. I mean, she could have hidden them and then she could have feigned ignorance if they're caught. But she, she lies to them. I mean, you could say she gives them a partial truth. Granted, it's the only part that everybody already knows. The men are here. But then she claims ignorance. I, I didn't know where they were from. No matter how you slice it, she's committing this perjury, right? 
the king's given this order and she gives this false testimony. She could have hidden them and left them, but instead she feigned ignorance. Instead she makes this bold and risky move because she's actually trying to save their lives. She wants the more guaranteed outcome for that. Then she sends them off in the wrong direction. That's a risky move as well. This is extremely risky and bold because she could have just let them search the house and hope that their hiding spots were good enough, but by sending the king's men off in a direction where she knows the spies are not, eventually that's gonna raise suspicion on her. It's risky. She raises the danger level for herself, but she does it with such confidence, right? Pursue them quickly for you will find them. She doesn't point them off in some vague direction and shrug her shoulders. She gives them urgency because she's trying to save their lives. And what do you think would happen to her if she's caught? She'd be dead for sure. She's a traitor. She gives false testimonies. The storyteller wants you to see that this woman is taking some incredibly bold risks And we also learn that she's far better at espionage than the spies are. She's got all these plans. Verse seven, so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan. That's the river that they had to cross to get, uh, that the spies had to cross, as far as the fords. So they're looking all over for them outside. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. The guards leave, the gate shuts. This is significant because Jericho is this walled and fortified city. And the gate is the only way in and the only way out. They're trapped. The risk is raised up and it's scary for both the spies and for Rahab. Verse eight, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. They keep mentioning the roof and the reason why the roof is significant is in this busy tavern, hostile place the roof is where they lay out the things to dry. It's like the maintenance closet. It's, it's away from prying ears. If anybody hears this plot, they're all done for. So she goes up there and she's taking all these risks and she's doing all of this. And here's the significant turn in the story because now she's gonna explain why she's doing all this. She came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. This is the reason she's taken so many bold and courageous risks. She believes that the Lord can save her. 
She believes that the Lord is God and that he can save her. She's risked her life in order to save it. She has bet the farm on this. She's putting her faith and her life in the hands of not only these two men who are not very competent, but really actually in the Lord. Notice that she doesn't say, she doesn't point to the Israelites being this great military presence or power. She points to the things that God has done. God's given you this land. God pulled you out of Egypt and and toppled the greatest empire that the world had known. The Lord, your God, is God. The storyteller also wants you to see this contrast, whereas before she was feigning ignorance, I didn't know where the men were from. Now she's saying, I know. She's stating very clearly, I know the Lord has given this land to you. She is doing all of this in a faith in a God that she has never known. This is an incredible act of faith. She actually believes that the Lord is God and that he is the only hope for her and her family, and it drives her to make some incredibly bold risks. And then the men said to her, our life for yours, verse 14, even if, uh, our life for yours, even in death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. They make an oath to her. Then she let uh, them down a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall. She's right there, she knows this is a great giant city wall, and these people with no like former military or no former land are coming, and she sees that these walls won't stand. She lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards, you may go your way. She comes up with their escape plan (laughs) to save their lives. Again, she seems to be much better at this than they are. Verse 17, the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear, meaning we'll keep up our end of the bargain. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Imagine uh, a bunch of Hebrew boys and the rabbis telling the story. I'm not going to do the voice again. But imagine this happening. There would be certain cues that they would pick up on. One would be the repetition. Again, what was the mission? The spies are there to search out the land. She hid them, she hid them. They they say that over and over. They want you to know she's taking a lot of risk. And then there's this scarlet cord. This scarlet cord, immediately in their minds, they would remember a story that happened previously in Egypt. When the worst of the plagues came through, the one that devastated things horrendously, this angel of death came to take the firstborn of every household, except those which would take a lamb and slaughter it and put the blood on the, the lentils in the doorpost. And that would be a sure sign 
And as the angel of death came, it would pass over that household just like this red scarlet cord would be a sure sign and destruction should pass over their household. This is what will save you is putting your faith in God. And she's taking on more risk. She has to invite more people into this plan. Who knows if they'll be able to keep the secret or if they're even on board. She takes on more risk because who knows how long this is going to take. At least three more days until these guys can even get back. Weeks, months, she doesn't know. It's an unguaranteed outcome. Verse 22, they departed and went into the hills, just like she said, and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. It worked. They made it back alive. They came down from the hills and passed over, meaning they crossed the Jordan, but again, I think that word's intentional. It came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. They told him the whole story. And then they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all this land into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. I love this. They get back, and what do they have to report? Right? I just imagine Joshua, he's sitting there, he's been waiting for this information. This is the first like mission. He's, he's kind of anxious and he's got this anxiety about, okay, we're gonna have to do this crazy campaign. I sent the two guys out. They're gonna let us know what information we need to know, right? Like they sees them coming and he says, okay, what'd you learn about the land? And they're like, nothing, nothing. We went there, we were discovered quickly. She got rid of the curls and uh, this woman, rescued us. They tell the story of Rahab and they conclude the whole thing. They've, they've got nothing about like military presence, territories, alliances. They've got none of this military strategy. They've got no intel like that. All they have is, is this, this story of a woman who, who put faith in God and rescued them and they say, truly the Lord has given this land into our hands. That's not new news. That's what God told Josh in chapter one. Josh said it to the people, the people said it back to them. They go on the mission to gain intel. What do you have to know? The Lord has given us this land. That's their report. God is doing this. And you know what? That was all the intel they needed. That's the whole strategy. Strategy isn't in their military power. It's just in the fact that God has promised them the land. Rahab the prostitute boldly risked everything because she believed the Lord would save her family. And that story inspired them to take a step further in faith. She bet everything on this because she knew that the Lord was God. That's what faith is. Like we read, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. There were no guarantees to this bold and risky plan of hers, that it would work or any of this, but because of her faith, spoiler alert, her and her family are saved. Hebrews 11.31, as it's listing off all these heroes of the faith, here's her mentioning, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. See, stories of faith like this aren't just supposed to entertain. 
but rather they are to inspire us to do the same, to have the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction for the things we haven't seen. In Hebrews, the whole point of pointing back to all these, these characters and to, to show how, look, they displayed their faith in God like this, and even though they couldn't see it, even though it was, wasn't guaranteed, they, they thought it was guaranteed because God said it. The whole point of them going back is to point and say, you should do the same. That was the intel they got, and that's the intel we have, that God is God. And here's the conclusion that uh, Hebrews draws. It goes through all of these, these uh, heroes of faith, all the way from Genesis to the, to the current time of the book of Hebrews, all the way up into, through the New Testament. And it ends that whole thing with this, therefore. You heard all these stories, chapter 12, verse one, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now in the past, I've heard people uh, interpret this passage to be about the dead watching us. They see this, oh, this great cloud of witnesses watching us, therefore we need to, to live differently. You know, like in Braveheart, you know, like she's, your, your wife's watching you, you know, she's passed away, and your father's watching you. It's kind of this mentality that the, the dead watch what we do, and we should live better, because they're witnessing this. And not only do I think that's inaccurate because of the natural progression of the passage, I think it's a little narcissistic. I mean, uh, I heard a comedian talk about this. He was talking about how, like, you know, you watch the post-game interview after the football game, and the guy's like, yeah, you know, I gave 110%. They gave 110%. Everybody comes out and gives 110%. But I really played the game for my mom because uh, she passed away, and I know she was watching the game today. And it sounds innocuous and, and everything, but I just kind of think, like, this, this guy's poor mother, right? She's, she spent her life taking care of her son. Like, she... She gave birth to him, that was hard, right? She cleans up after him, she changes his diapers, she, she takes him to school, she takes him to practices, comes to games, all throughout elementary school, high school, college. She's feeding him, taking care of him. She comes, he makes the pros, she's so proud, she comes to those games and everything and cheers. And even in death, her job isn't done. She's still gotta, she's still gotta, can't enjoy heaven, I gotta, my son's got a game, I gotta come over here, he, he's gonna ask when he gets up here, I better watch the game. It's like she's in the presence of the Lord, don't you think she might be more into that thing? But I say all that because this passage actually says quite the opposite. This passage talks about since we have seen and we have witnessed the faithfulness of those who have gone before us, let us act in faith. Let us cast aside every weight and sin that cling so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Rahab lived in a, in a fortified city, but she knew those walls wouldn't stand. What drove her to act so boldly and to take so much risk was faith. Faith in a God to save her. She bet the farm on that, and we are in no different shape. We are desperate 
desperate in need of a savior. We have to believe that God will save us. We have to let that faith drive us to bold action because the walls that we build to save ourselves aren't gonna stand. Because we have witnessed Rahab's great faith in God to save her and her family, we too should act boldly in faith. So as I close, I I wanna ask you a couple of questions. First one is this, does your faith have any risk in it? Does your faith have any risk in it? I would argue that risk is essential to faith. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. Faith always requires risk and uncertainty. If you fix your eyes on Jesus, if you believe, you put your faith in the fact that he alone paid for your sins and saved you from sin and death, then you are freed up to take risk because of the victory that he has already won. We believe that that sin has lost its power and that death has lost its sting. We put our faith in a victory that's already obtained but not yet seen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German theologian and a pastor during World War II. And uh, he had an opportunity to avoid the whole conflict, to stay out of Germany during that conflict. But because of his faith, he said, I need to go there and I need to preach and speak out against these things. And he, in his faith in God, took some bold and risky moves and eventually ended up dying in a concentration camp, living as a prisoner, writing letters, and dying for his faith shortly before the war would end. And here's what he wrote uh, about victory. In our lives, we don't speak readily of victory. It is too big a word for us. We have suffered too many defeats in our lives. Victory has been thwarted again and again by too many weak hours, too many gross sins. But isn't it true that the spirit within us yearns for this word, for the final victory over sin and anxious fear of death in our lives? And now God's word also says nothing to us about our victory. It doesn't promise that we will become victorious over sin and death from now on. Rather, it says with all its might that someone has won this victory and that this person, if we have him as Lord, will also win the victory over us. It is not we who are victorious, but Jesus. We proclaim that today and believe it despite all that we see around us, despite the graves of our loved ones, despite the morbid nature outside, despite the death that war brings upon us again. We see the supremacy of death, and yet we proclaim and believe the victory of Jesus Christ over death. Death is swallowed up in victory, and Jesus is the victor the resurrection of the dead and everlasting life. Does your faith cause you to live a life in promised victory? Do you know that the Lord has given you this land? That sin has been defeated? That death isn't the end? Because that's all the intel you need. Or do you live a life bombarded with sin and fear of death? If you are a Christian in the room and and you say, "I, I believe in Jesus, but if you're honest, like sin is reigning in your life, and you're like, I can't shake it. 
I want to remind you of something you've already known, something you've already been told. It's not new news. It's not new intel. It's that Jesus already paid for that. The victory's guaranteed in him. So don't let it run your life. Lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely so that you can run boldly for God. And you don't do this by, by trying harder or coming up with some great military strategy to slay the sin in your life. You can't gather enough intel. If you could, you would have licked it by now and there'd be no need for God. But you do need God and you do need Jesus. You lay every, aside every weight and sin that clings so closely by having a desperate faith that causes you to act boldly. You do it by fixing your eyes on Jesus, by reminding yourself of the victory that's already been won. And you put your faith in that. And you bet the farm on that. I want you to every time temptation comes your way to take a risk. And that risk is to trust that God's way is better than the walls that you could build yourself to remind yourself of the grace that's been afforded for you and that he has saved your life. This will cause you to make some bold and risky moves, be warned. If you came in here today and you've never known that Jesus is the one who frees you from sin and guilt, I wanna tell you this, he is. He's the only one who could do it. And maybe you came in here today because your way of life just isn't working and you're desperate. Remember Rahab, the prostitute, who put her faith in a God that she never knew, and he was faithful to save her. Maybe you came in here, and you're like, actually, things are pretty good. You know, I, I, I don't feel like my life is desperate. I wouldn't call it desperate. But if we're honest, you've, you've kind of built your walls and, and like, these other things like, if I could just keep the family together, then everything will be fine. If I could just uh, keep the marriage together, things will be fine. If I could just get this job, or if, if this would just happen, then everything will be fine. And if you're honest, you can see the cracks in the wall and you know they won't stand. I wanna remind you that God is faithful and just and he can save you. He's the only one that can. And these things are great things, but they're terrible gods and you need to put your faith in a God who can promise you victory. Our uh, series is called Bold as a Lion, and this concept comes from Proverbs 28, one, which says this, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as lions. If you wanna live a bold life, you have to be right with God. That's all that word righteous means, to be right with God. It's not like righteous, like Keanu Reeves uses it. But it means to be right with God. People who live in guilt, knowing that their walls won't stand, they have anxiety. Nothing is sure. They run when nothing is chasing them. But people who are right with God are bold. If you want to live life as, a bold, as bold as a lion, you have to get right with God. And the only way to get right with God isn't by trying harder. According to scripture, it's by putting your faith in Jesus and resting in the work that he's already done. That's what we sang about. 
In tenderness, God sought us out. By his love, he sought us. By his blood, he bought us. He died for me while I was sinning, needy, poor, and blind. And I want to challenge you that the way to kind of get those things in alignment is to remind yourself of the grace. We sang that this morning too. Upon his grace, I'll daily ponder and sing anew his praise. Try it for seven days. Try waking up and reminding yourself of the grace of God and the victory he's already promised you and see what kind of bold moves you make. Because when you think of that, you can't help but sing his praise anew. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the cross and your resurrection and how it holds uh, everything. Not only through the cross which you paid for all of our sins, but in the resurrection where you showed us and gave us a sign and a promise that so shall we rise from the dead. And so today, God, I'd like to give a moment uh, for those sitting in here that may have just kind of heard this for the first time and said, you know what, I'm gonna try putting my trust in this God that I haven't known. Would you be with them in this moment? And may they say these, these, these concepts, God, I will follow after you. I will put my hope and my faith not in what I can do, but in what you have already accomplished and done. Even though I can't see it, I believe it. I'll have this faith in, in assurance and things hoped for, this conviction and things not yet seen. And may you call them deeper and deeper to more. For those of us sitting in here and we're wrestling with sin, God, would you remind us of your grace? That that stuff doesn't need to hold us anymore. That we are your sons and daughters, that you have given us a new identity. And the penalty of sin is, is no longer on us anymore. That we can cast off every weight and sin that clings so closely by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the, and the perfecter, the one who's finishing and working out our faith within us. May we trust in it more and more. Give us the grace to trust it more and more. God, we come before you and we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.